The following podcast is from Tabernacle Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia. Thanks for listening. Church family, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to find your place in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Can you guys hear me? I'm on, but... Mark chapter 11. All right, this morning, thank you. There we go, Mark chapter 11. And this morning we're going to look at verses 12 uh, through 19. And I'm beginning a new series of messages entitled Real Religion. Real Religion. I hope you have one of these with you. We'll be observing the Lord's Supper. A little bit different this morning. We'll be observing the Lord's Supper within the message. Uh, But if you have one of these... uh, Hang on to that. We'll use it in just a moment. If you need one in order to observe the Lord's Supper, they're available in the foyer. So a series within a series of messages here entitled Real Religion. This week and for the new, next two weeks, I'll speak on that, this subject. And then afterwards, we will go into Mark chapter 13 and look at the subject over several weeks of the end. And we'll look at end times truth from Mark's gospel. But I want to speak for a few weeks here on the subject of real religion. And this morning, I'm speaking on true transformation. We'll look next week at the idea of powerful praying. The week after that, of the need of accepting the Lord's authority. But this week, we're looking at the subject of true transformation. We want to see two events this morning from the Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' life. Two events that Jesus used to show the religious people of his day their need for true transformation and true religion. Did you know this? It's easy to settle for spiritual substitutes. Many people have the outward show of religion without the real thing. In fact, I believe that the greatest threat to Christianity, the greatest enemy of the life of God, isn't no religion, but false religion. And so Mark records here two interesting events from Jesus' final week on earth that show our need for real religion. Now, I brought with me this morning a few things. One thing I brought was this, a, a bottle of Coke. How many of y'all just love Coca-Cola? We lived out in Oklahoma for a while, and out there folks are crazy about Dr. Pepper being close to Texas. But having been raised here in Georgia, I love Coca-Cola. In fact, a Coke, can I get an amen, is a lot better out of a bottle, right? And this isn't one of those smaller bottles. This is actually uh, one of those uh, Mexican Cokes that's got the pure cane sugar in it. This is really good stuff right here. Okay. So, but I remember back in the 80s, I believe it was the early 80s, Coke um, tried a little experiment. Do you remember when they came out with new Coke? That just wasn't right, was it? In fact, Coke... Uh, got into some trouble there because they changed the recipe. They changed Coca-Cola. How do you do that? Well, they had to quickly backtrack, didn't they? And I remember drinking out of those cans for a while on the side. They said, original formula. 
original formula. That new Coke didn't work out. In fact, Coke had to backtrack and come out with a marketing campaign where they boasted of their Coke being the real thing. How many of y'all remember that? The real thing, that marketing campaign. Now, so with Coca-Cola, it really is better when you've got the real thing, right? The same is true when it comes to Christianity. We want to make sure that we have the real thing. Did you know there are a lot of people filling pews or attending churches who don't have the real thing? They've got churchianity, but they don't have Christianity. They've never really been born again by the Spirit of God. Then there are those Christians who believe because they've made a profession and because they attend church that they have the real thing, but they don't know what it's like to really live by the Spirit. They have church activity without having the abiding life of Christ. There are many who have church involvement, but they've never been transformed by years. They've had the same old strongholds, and they've been in bondage to old sins. They've never tapped in to true transformation, real religion, the real thing. Let's look at God's word this morning and let's be on guard and let's examine our own lives and let's hunger and thirst after the real thing, real religion and true transformation. How can we pursue such religion? I want to look at these events, two events from Jesus last week on earth and gain some important truth for pursuing real religion. Four actions. First of all, we see in order for you, in order for me, in order for us to pursue real religion, first of all, we have to know or use our power source. So I'd say this this morning as the preacher, if you want to experience real religion and true transformation in Jesus, you need to use your power source. Now, this morning, right before I came to church, I went into the bathroom, and part of my routine is to unplug this charger I have in the bathroom. I have in the, the wall socket, I have a charger I bought on Amazon, and it's got like five outlets, and I can charge my phone, I can charge my AirPods, I can charge my I, Apple Watch. I charge also this morning, had my hair clippers plugged in, because yesterday, I don't know if y'all noticed, I, cut my hair so I let those charge overnight so next time I need a haircut those bad boys are ready to go hey but we live in this world where your power source is important we've got to charge a lot of stuff don't we so I know my power source at the house can I propose to you this morning that as a Christian it is critical for you to be aware of the power source that you have in the Lord through the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of Christ. Know this, the Christian life isn't about you trying to be good in your own flesh. The Christian life is you learning how to live by faith, abide in Christ, and walk in the Spirit. This is the secret of the Christian life, learning to allow the Holy Spirit of God to change you from the inside out. Now, we see an allusion to this reality in the text before us. 
Look in verse number 12 at what Mark says. It says the next day, and by the way, that's Monday, the day after the triumphal entry. It's the second day of the week. The next day, when they went out from Bethany, he, speaking of Jesus, was hungry. Now notice this intentional allusion to the fact that Jesus was hungry. Everybody say that word hungry. Any of y'all getting hungry? Well, it's not noon yet, and y'all came to the 1115 service, so you're going to have to wait till at least 1215 till we're dismissed, and then you can go some, get something to eat. Well, actually, we'll have the Lord's Supper in here in just a minute, so hopefully it'll hold some of you over. But notice that Jesus was going out from Bethany during the Holy Week. We believe that Jesus and his disciples had their lodging at Bethany, and they traveled back and forth to Jerusalem nearly every day. This was a two-mile walk. Jesus had traveled into Jerusalem the day before for the triumphal entry, and there had been a lot of fanfare, a lot of festivities. It was a busy day, to say the least. Then he and his disciples traveled two miles back to Bethany. Now it's Monday morning, and they're traveling from Bethany once again to Jerusalem. And probably because of the events from the day before, Jesus didn't have an opportunity to have an evening meal. He's done a lot of walking and traveling. For Jews in the first century, you didn't have your first meal of the day until noon. So there's a multitude of reasons here that Jesus is hungry. Now Mark points out this fact. Why? Is this just a useless tidbit of information? Oh, by the way, Jesus was hungry. Oh, why does Mark draw attention to our Lord's desire for food? I believe this is intentional by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Word of God and the Lord want to remind us that Jesus had a human nature. Though he was 100% God, he was also 100% man. And as the events of the Holy Week begin or continue, as Jesus here begins to show people their need for real religion, we are reminded of how we have real religion. Our ability to please God, our ability to be changed before God, forgiven before God, comes from the one who was 100% God, 100% man. Our ability to please the Lord in the flesh comes through the one who took human flesh upon himself. See, you are not able to please God or worship him apart from his aid and grace. Your ability to be forgiven and to be made right before the Lord comes from the one who became human on your behalf. Know this about Jesus. He stepped into the time continuum of human history to live in the flesh the perfect life you could never live in the flesh. And his flesh went to the cruel cross of Calvary and he died as a sacrifice for your sins. And he was buried and three days later he got up from the grave, 100% God, 100% man, to give everlasting life 
to every man, woman, boy, and girl who trust in him for salvation. And here we see an illusion. As the Holy Week rolls on, we see an illusion to what we call the substitutionary life and death of Jesus Christ. We're reminded that he embraced humanity on our behalf to make a way for us mere humans to know God. And so see this from Mark's gospel. We're about to see Jesus confront the false, empty, man-made, self-righteous religion of his day. And before he does, Mark reminds us he was the God-man, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And if we have any hope of having real, pure, undefiled religion that pleases God, we first of all got to pause and remember the gospel. It's only because Jesus lived the life we could never live that we have forgiveness and power to please God. So it's fitting this morning that we have this juice and this bread, these elements used in the Lord's Supper. It's fitting as we talk about real religion and true transformation to look to the body and blood of Jesus and to recall that it is his body and his blood that gives us forgiveness, that gives us strength, that gives us the ability to live the Christian life. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never been saved. Know this, if you were to stand before God right now, you have no ability through your own self to please him. It is only the blood and body of Jesus that will forgive you. And maybe you're a Christian this morning and you're struggling with sin. You feel tempted. You're suffering. Know this, it is only the body and blood of Jesus that will help you overcome. So I want to ask you to take the bread here and the juice and go ahead and open your packet. We're going to do this a little bit different as Baptists. We have a kind of typical order with deacons distributing and all that. We're reminded that the first Lord's Supper was a lot different than our custom. What's important this morning is that we simply take of these elements as a way of remembering the body and blood of Jesus. Maybe this morning you ask who can take of the Lord's Supper. Can I take of it? 1 Corinthians 11 teaches us that this is something for Christians to remember what Christ has done on their behalf. So if you're a born-again believer, I invite you to do what the Bible says and take of these elements. And let's remember that the main purpose of this act is to remember what Jesus has done for us. So if we want real religion, if we want true transformation, we need to remember Jesus was hungry. He was the Son of God who lived and died on our behalf. The only hope we have of forgiveness, the only ability we have to live the Christian life comes through his body and blood. Now, let, let me talk to us about this this morning. Have you ever considered why Jesus told us to eat of these elements? Now, now they're symbols, correct? The juice, the fruit of the vine, represents his blood that was given for our forgiveness of sins. The bread is a symbol. It represents the body of Jesus broken on behalf of our bodies so that one day we can receive a new body that will live forever with God. But why did Jesus tell us to eat of these things? Why didn't he just tell us to look at them? Hey, disciples, here's an object lesson. 
Bread represents my body. Look at it. Get the meaning. Fruit of the vine represents my blood. Look at it. Get the meaning. Never forget it. Why did Jesus tell us to eat of these things? Jesus wanted to paint a powerful picture. When you eat, the bread goes into your mouth, goes through your esophag- goes through your throat, excuse me, down into your stomach. Goes into your stomach and there stomach juices break it down, right? And then it is transferred into your body. The nutrients are transferred into your body and your bloodstream to give life. Same thing happens with the juice. And here, the wonder of Jesus' illustration for us, his object lesson. He depicts through the bread and body, yes, that these things are given on our behalf, but he reminds us that he, through the Holy Spirit at salvation, enters into our innermost being, and his spirit brings animation to our spiritual life. His spirit brings strength and provision to our spiritual life. And it is by Christ in us that we have the ability to have real religion and true transformation. So today, we follow Jesus' instruction. He said, take, eat, this is my body, in remembrance of him. Believer, never forget that it is the body of Jesus broken on your behalf that gives you the ability in your body to live in a way that pleases God. Oh, trust in Christ in you. And Jesus took the cup containing the fruit of the vine and he said, this is my blood shed on your behalf. As often as you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me, in remembrance of him. Christian, never forget that it is the blood of Jesus that cleanses you of your sins, not your attempts at good works. And it is the blood of Jesus, 1 John 1, 9, that can cleanse you from all unrighteousness and enable you to live the Christian life. If you want to experience true transformation and real religion, use your power source. Learn to rely on Christ in you. And number two this morning, if you want to have real religion, true transformation, you need to look for fruit. Look for fruit. See, in the Christian life, Talk is cheap. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, by your fruit you will know them. True believers produce good fruit. John 15, 5, Jesus taught this. He said, abide in me and you'll produce much fruit. Now fruit represents good works in the Christian life. We know this, good works do not save us, but if we are truly saved, the Bible teaches we will produce good works. Good works are not the way we earn our salvation, but they are evidence of salvation. Jesus, we see in the text before us, was disturbed when he visited the 
21st century, or excuse me, the first century Jews because they had religious profession, but they did not exhibit good works. Look in verse 13 at how the story continues. As Jesus traveled, he was hungry, and it says, seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. He's looking for figs. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. We're going to see next week as I preach on the subject of powerful praying that Jesus here performed a sign and wonder, a miracle. In accordance with Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 4, this miracle was intended as a sign and a wonder. It was a sign in that it demonstrated Jesus was creator God. He had power over the creative natural order. But it was also a wonder. It contained This miracle contained a built-in object lesson. Jesus intended to convey important, as he did with all of his miracles, important spiritual truth through this marvel. In particular, he wanted to show his disciples the critical necessity of fruit, produce, within the lives of all of those who make religious professions. You see, when he came to Jerusalem in the first century, he found the Jews, he found Israel with a lot of talk about God, but they had no repentance, no real spiritual fruit. He takes this fig tree and uses it as an object lesson. You see, at the time of these events, we know by studying the calendars that In A.D. 30, the Passover occurred. These events would have occurred the first week of April. Now, now, people in Jesus' day would not have expected a fig tree to have figs the first week of April. Normally, the first harvest didn't come until May or June. A latter harvest would take place in August. However, a fig tree would have been, again, to show leaves In late March. So as Jesus approaches this fig tree, he knows it is a perfect object lesson to represent apostate Israel. It has leaves, therefore it has signs of life, signs of life, but it does not have figs, fruit. It's a great picture of what Israel looked like in the first century. They had a beautiful temple complex. And all types of teaching, religious leaders, codified tradition in the Mishnah, elaborate ceremonies and customs that had been added on top of the law to protect the Torah. Many people making many spiritual boasts. However, Israel was devoid and empty of true spiritual fruit. She missed the Messiah who was right in front of her. Indeed, in a few days, she would condemn him to crucifixion. And Jesus here issues a curse upon this tree to indicate the judgment that soon would come upon Israel. She was guilty of mere man-made, self-righteous, empty religion, and vain professions. 
She did not have true repentance and real spiritual fruit. And let's be on guard, church, and let's remember that Jesus has called us to produce good fruit. He has said, abide in me and you will produce much fruit. He has warned us we should examine ourselves. And his word teaches us that his spirit within us should make a change and produce some spiritual realities. Remember Galatians 5, 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we should be on guard and make sure that we don't talk about Christ without living like Christ. We should be on guard that we don't have religious professions without religious practice we should look at our lives and say oh lord do i have these fruits of which you speak and if not as a christian help me to walk with you so that others may see a change in me so that i might be a blessing for your name's sake i brought with me a few apples this morning i have them on stage how many of y'all are hungry? We, we've spoken about hungry already. How many of y'all that the Lord's Supper snack just didn't work? You're still hungry. Would you raise your hand? Anybody would like an apple this morning? I gave away an apple away in the previous service. Anybody like one? I mean, I'm serious. All right, Libby. She'll, she'll be honest. Okay. Now, the only problem is, Libby, I don't think you want one of these apples, all right? Might have to take you to the emergency room or the dentist tomorrow morning. My mother gave me these apples to use this morning as an object lesson, and I, I, I texted her and said, do you still have those apples? I remember being a teenager and walking through the living room and on the coffee table, she had a wooden bowl, and these apples would be resting in there, and I knew they were fake, but man, when you're hungry and you're a teenager, you might think, man, I can't tell. Those really look real. I need a snack. Know this this morning, just as there's imitation fruit, there are imitation Christians. There are believers who make a profession or names written on the roll at a church. Maybe they've even been baptized, given money, served on a committee. But the fruits that really matter, those fruits of the Spirit, those positive Christian virtues, lack in their lives. Now, now when that takes place, one or two things could be wrong. Number one, perhaps that person has never been truly saved, truly born again, he or she needs to repent and turn and believe in Jesus for the first time and receive his spirit. Or perhaps that individual's a believer and he or she has just not learned how to truly live the Christian life, to walk in the spirit and allow Jesus to produce real fruit. Can I encourage you this morning as you listen to the Word of God, examine your life, make sure you are a real believer, and make sure if you are a believer that you're living the real Christian life by faith through the Spirit, abiding in Christ, walking His Word, being a person of prayer, humbling yourself and taking up your cross daily and following Jesus so that He, by His Spirit, can give you true transformation. We see from the Word of God, we need to use our power source. We need, secondly, to look for fruit. Number three this morning, if you're still following along, say amen. 
And number three, I want us to see from our text that we've got to keep our worship pure. Use your power source. Look for fruit. Number three, keep your worship pure. And here I'm speaking about Lord's Day worship, what we're doing right now. We're going to see here in the text as we read that Jesus went to the first century place of worship, though there were synagogues and local communities, the, the, the apex, the center, the hub for Jewish worship was the temple complex. And when Jesus went to this place in the first century, he found that the worship there was impure. Know this, Romans 12, 1 through 2, true worship has a way of transforming your soul. Here's why the Lord, 1 Timothy 4, gave us Lord's Day worship. He told Timothy, preach the word. Why? Because God's people need to gather on the first day of the week and turn their eyes to the worship and to to the word. And when we engage in real worship, when the word of God is proclaimed and we become faithful hearers, our souls and our minds are transformed and changed. So as we as believers in the 21st century need to make sure that we keep this holy gathering pure, reserve Colossians 3.16 for singing songs to the Lord and for looking to the Scriptures, letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. Oh, how sad it is that many 21st century churches have sold out pure worship for mere entertainment. How sad it is that many 21st century churches have sold out pure worship for a mere social gathering. How sad it is that many 21st century churches have sold out pure worship for a mere cultural current events focus. Look at first century scene. The Bible says in verse 15, look in your Bible, it said they came to Jerusalem. The two-mile trek is over. And he went into the temple, the center for Jewish worship, and he began to throw out those buying and selling. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And then he began to teach what should have been going on in the place of worship, teaching from the Word of God. He began teaching them Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. Now, notice here that Jesus began, verse 15, to throw out those buying and selling. Historians tell us, many propose it was actually right around A.D. 30 that merchants had begun setting up marketplaces within the temple courts in order to sell animals needed for the sacrifices associated with the temple observances. Now, according to the Bible, when one came to worship, he or she needed an unblemished animal to sacrifice. Merchants and money-hungry folk knew that many of the travelers who had traveled great distances for the Passover weren't able to bring an unblemished animal with them. So they sold animals in the temple complex. Along with this, there were those who needed money, so money changers set up shop. They knew that people from the dispersion needed currency that would be used in the temple complex, so they were there 
to trade the needed shekel for whatever currency one might have had. Now, the Bible here tells us Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. The dove was for the poorest of people. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He's not allowing the merchants to hawk their wares, to bring their goods into the temple complex. Now, let me pause here and say something very important. The Bible here does not prohibit, I believe, us selling things in the church per se sometimes we'll get tore up from the floor up they'll be a little legalistic with this passage and think we're selling a book we're selling fish fry tickets oh my goodness we're turning the church into a den of thieves it's important for us to understand the meaning of the passage here Uh, jesus is first of all lashing out against not just selling but extortion. We believe the merchants here had marked up the prices. They were price gouging God's people. So so first of all, you need to understand that. But number two, you you need to, to perceive that the issue here isn't just with selling. It is selling an item that one needed in order to engage in meaningful worship. This is one marking up items that are needed in order for one to experience forgiveness of sins and cleansing before the Lord. One here is placing a premium, an inflated premium on worship, on forgiveness, on being in a right relationship with God. So let's be careful we don't adopt a legalistic spirit with the word of God here. But then continue, look at verse 17. It says, he was teaching them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And notice Jesus in the midst of people trying to make money off of worship. Jesus goes back to the authority of scripture. He quotes Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11, showing that when we gather together, our focus should be on thus saith the Lord. Our focus should not be on the opinions of men. Our focus should not be on ourselves and what we want, what style of worship we prefer. Our focus should not be on others and what they think of us. Our focus should not be on 21st century man-made traditions of worship. Somehow in the midst of all that we do, we've got to make sure our worship is focused on the Lord and his word We've got to keep those things integral. We've got to remain zoomed in on the gospel, on Jesus, on what he says. If our worship church isn't pure, people will not experience real religion and true transformation. Keep your worship pure. Lastly, this morning, I want you to see one final truth from our text. Do you want to have true transformation and real religion? You've got to use your power source. You've got, as Mark shows us here, look for fruit. You've got to keep your worship pure. Lastly, I want you to see from Mark's gospel that you need to grow in the fear of God. Grow in your fear of God. Proverbs 1-7 teaches us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. By the fear of the Lord, the Proverbs tells us, one departs from evil. 
Now, now Mark is real intentional here to show us that the first century religionists had a problem with the fear of man. Other gospel writers will speak of this. Mark shows it in our current passage as the text continues. In verse number 18, it says, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Now, Mark chapter 3, verse number 6 tells us back there that the religious leaders had already started plotting to have Jesus killed. Did you know there's some people who have a liberal view of Scripture? They believe that this event didn't really occur. This event of Jesus chasing out the money changers and turning over tables, they, they say that, that couldn't have happened. That's made up. It's fabricated because if Jesus would have really done that, he would have been arrested on the spot. The Romans were right nearby in the fortress of Antonia. They would have had Jesus apprehended. The religious leaders would not have tolerated that. They would have called on the Romans right then to arrest them. This event couldn't have happened. Our Bible is not true. Well, I believe we see a clue in the text here of why the religious leaders did not have Jesus arrested. It says they knew, look at the end of verse 15, 18, the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. They did not want to have Jesus arrested at this point. They knew if they would have had him handcuffed, bound, that the common folk at the temple would have revolted. They would have been in an uproar. They had seen back in Mark 11, 10 through 11, that when Jesus entered on this triumphal entry, the common folk celebrated, saying, Hosanna to the King of David. Why did the religious leaders not want Jesus arrested on this occasion? Why did they have to plot in secret? They were afraid of the common folk. They were afraid of people. As another gospel writer tells us, they lived by the fear of man. Note this, friend, in life, you will ever, either be dominated by the fear of God or the fear of man. Which one are you living by? If you live by the fear of man, you will not be able to please God. The Proverbs tell us, Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man is a snare but the one who trusts in the Lord is safe. Oh, why did these people reject Jesus? Why did the religious leaders hate him? Because they lived for man. They were people pleasers. They had a man focus. They live by the fear of humanity and not the fear of God. And here we see a hallmark of devoid, worthless empty, fake religion, a preoccupation with what others think. And oftentimes, a complete disregard for what God thinks. The psalmist said this about the ungodly person, God is in none of his thoughts. And this was the scenario with the first century religious leaders. They were eaten up by the fear of man. And they weren't driven by the fear of God. If they, were, if they would have been consumed by that healthy respect and reverence from the Lord that we ought to have, they would have bowed the knee 
to Jesus and embraced a more pure form of religion. So know this, it's easy with maybe our middle schoolers or our kids sometimes, right? I'll, I'll find myself, the kids might tell me of something somebody said to them at school. And sometimes we found this out, we were, they're coming home and their lunch boxes are full. Everything we prepared for them for lunch. Why didn't you eat your lunch? Well, kids make fun of my sandwiches. I'd say, boy, I want to eat. You ain't going to make fun of my sandwich. I'm eating lunch, right? I don't care what you think about my sandwich. Get over it. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I'd say. But, you know, the kids, they, uh, they're worried about what their classmates think. So as parents, we find ourselves so often saying, man, don't, that's unhealthy. That's not right. Don't be driven by what others think of you. Know that you're loved by your parents and you're loved by the Lord. You ought to care what we think and what the Lord thinks more than what Johnny or Bryson thinks at school, right? Now, it's easy. Sometimes I'm giving my kids that pep talk. Don't you be worrying about what others think. Then all of a sudden I think, my goodness, in my own life sometimes, I'm driven crazy by what others think. And it's a reminder before the Lord. I've been called to fear the Lord above man. You too. Know this, if you live by the fear of man, it'll eat your lunch. You'll miss out on joy. You'll be an unhappy person. But if you learn to live by the fear of the Lord, you'll have a whole lot more freedom in life because you're living for an audience of one. And then you'll ultimately please the Lord. And that's what counts most. And by fearing him, you'll tap into, you'll discover what we're calling real religion and true transformation. For more information, visit us online at tabernaclebaptist.org. Thanks for listening.